0: Good morning, church family. Excited to get to be here with you. Excited to get to be your teaching pastor. If you're new, my name's Corey. I'm one of the pastors on the staff. I get to open up 1 Corinthians uh, for you. If you know me well, uh, this is the first time I've ever wore a shirt other than a built t-shirt or a button-down. I sports now, so it turns out it's, it's, sports teams are fun, and sports are fun. And so uh, they got me into San Luis City. And uh, it's been great, and so we're crushing it. In uh, a lot of sports, if you've been in social media lately, uh, you'll see that uh, someone named Taylor Swift has recently started dating someone named Travis Kelly, or whatever his name is. This St. Louis chef's apparently he was a nobody and started. He became a Swifty, and now he's like a big deal. And so, uh, have you guys seen this on social media? Yeah, there's like T-shirts going around. It's like my favorite football team is Taylor Swift's boyfriend's football team. She's totally taken over the Chiefs and Travis Kelsey and then his brother, who obviously is, I guess, one of the best centers in the NFL. This dude has two rings. And so I've been following this, not really following it, but it just seems to pop up in my algorithm for some reason, I guess because I'm following it. And uh, I'm a Swifty. And um, and I've just been like watching this. And so what's funny is these wives will come in uh, to their husbands and they'll say something like what I just said. Like this Travis Kelly and the, the husbands are freaking out. And they're like, yeah, she totally took his career to a new high. And they're like, he has two Super Bowl rings, 2,000 yard, you know, all this stuff. And they just totally freak out. And so as I was like watching that this week with Andrea, my wife who thinks it's hilarious, um, I couldn't help but realize like, that's kind of what the church looks like on topics that really don't matter at all. And so there's a, a lot of uh, people in the church that will not take uh, just the Word of God, but they'll kind of take some of the Word of God, and they create their own law and their own legal, legalism, and then they try to project that upon you and call that the law of God. Uh, But the problem with that is that there are some things that exist in the Bible that are very matter-of-fact. We've spent the last three weeks now looking at sexual immorality, right? And Paul said, hey, there's really no way you can skirt around this thing. Sexual immorality is, in fact, sexual immorality. It just is what it is. And so for three weeks, Paul put an emphasis on that. So we put an emphasis on that. And so within that, though, there, there are some things, though, that are not necessarily a sin for me, but they may be a sin for someone up here on the front row, or they may not be a sin for someone over there, but they may be for me. And whenever you get into that, now you get a little bit more gray. And now all the people that love taking notes in sermons are like, well, what do we do? It's hard to explain because there is a lot of gray. And so the, the question this week, though, is what is Christian liberty? How much freedom do I really have? What is Christian liberty. There are some things that are just very, very matter of fact. And so if you want to write something down, one of those note takers I just made fun of, or if you're online viewing this, uh, objective idolatry is the term you want to write down. Objective idolatry. There's some things that are just objectively sinful, like sexual immorality. We sat in for three weeks and it's like, it doesn't really matter if your conscience is clear or not when you're out there watching pornography. That is in fact a sin. There's no way you can scoot Around that, that's objective idolatry. Now, there's some things, and this is where, if I'm gonna get an email from any sermon this year, it'll be this sermon. There's some things now that are subjective idolatry. That means they're subjective to change depending on your audience in front of you, uh, depending on the consciousness of the person, the conscience of someone, not consciousness, the conscience of someone sitting in front of you, depending upon the conviction now, even of the person that is setting in front of you. There's a subjective idolatry that says, within the context of Christian liberty, there are some things that I can do. I have the freedom to do so. I have the liberty to do so. I've been set free in Christ, as a matter of fact, to exercise all right and authority to do this one thing. Unless, in fact, that one thing, Paul says, leads to to be a stumbling block for the consciousness of the person who's sitting across the table from me. Then Christian liberty is not about what I get to do. Christian liberty, rather, is about what I get to abstain from being able to do in the name of Jesus Christ. And so there are some things here, another thing for you to write down, called spirit-led conviction. There are some things that I just can't tell you what you can and cannot do. Perhaps I don't know your story. I don't know your background. I don't have enough context for you. And so you have to be able to listen then to God's word, to God's people, but specifically spirit, the Holy Spirit, spirit spirit-led conviction. This is where the religious person in the room goes, I don't think I like that very much. It doesn't allow me to fill out my to-do list on on boxes I can check or cannot check, and it becomes more difficult. But there is such a thing called spirit-led convictions that makes some areas of life Sinfully, subjectively sinful, while some things just remain. Hey, this is black and white. It's objective. You cannot skirt around that. You guys tracking with that so far? Okay, cool. So the big idea then for you is this. Christian liberty refers to your freedom to partake and your freedom to abstain. I'm going to use the word abstention here in a bit. You don't have to Google it. It's an actual word, okay? The team earlier was like, is that a real word? I was like, I think so. They fact-checked me. We're good. Christian liberty refers to your freedom to partake and your freedom to abstain, as we're going to talk about here in a little bit. And then there are three points that I've set up for you uh, today. And I'm just going to kind of hit these points. I'm going to try to avoid humor because it is a sensitive, uh, more sensitive topic than I realized. And so i try to avoid some humor and just preach the text. Uh, when it comes to Christian liberty, err on the side of love for the sake of your brother and sister because Christ died for them. So one sentence, I'm breaking into three points for you. Error on the side of love for the sake of your brother or sister, uh, because Christ died for them. That's why you do it. Sound good? All right, let's start with number one. Error on the side of love. If you're new to heights, uh, we just try to preach as best we can, just straight through books of the Bible. So we're in 1 Corinthians, seeing what Paul has to say to Corinth. Error on the side of love, point number one. When you're ready, say ready. All right, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 6. Here she goes. Now concerning food offered to idols, uh, we know that, quote, had said, Corinth had said, all of us possess knowledge. Well, Paul says to that, this knowledge puffs up, but what? But what builds up? Love. Love. Come on. But what builds up? Love. There she is. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, oh, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Uh, But if anyone loves God, well, he is known by God. And so Paul here is circling back around to a conversation that started for us about three weeks ago, uh, whenever the church of Corinth had, they've clearly written a letter to Paul. Paul's addressing that letter. And they had said, well, do you not know that the body is made for sex and sex is made for the body? They also said in that same chapter, well, do you not know that food is meant for the body and the body is meant for food? And Paul, if you remember, said, well, yeah, and the Lord will burn all of that up as a matter of fact so Paul then spent three weeks looking at the body and sex and sexual immorality. And now he's kind of circling back around here and he's saying, hey, and, the, and about that comment you made about food being sacrificed to idols, well, now we're gonna hit that. And so this is important for them in their culture um, because there was really not a way that you could go about eating meat without that meat having been sacrificed to some false god in that culture. If you were to go into the meat market of that time, there would have been meat, but it would have almost all been sacrificed to some false god. And so the, the question they're kind of coming over, the thing that he's addressing is, hey, how do we, like they're saying, like, we can't even get around this. Everywhere we go, that we wanna, if we want to eat anything that is meat, we, it's going to be sacrificed to something. What do we do about that? How do, how, I know there's only one God. I know there's only one. Idol. We all have this knowledge, but in saying that, like they're looking down their nose at the people of Corinth that had a real issue with that. At the same time, they may have been invited simply into pagan temples or into pagan feasts as a missional opportunity where they're setting down with people who think differently than them or Uh, live differently than them, have different beliefs than them. That's a good missional opportunity. As a matter of fact, you should surround yourself with people that look differently than you think differently, you smell different than you do, eat different foods than you eat. And so it's possible then from a missional standpoint, they've been invited into these temples and people in the church are looking and saying, oh, how can you eat with those people? How can you be in that temple? How can you partake in that food? And what Corinth is saying here, while they're saying it kind of in a rude fashion, they're saying, hey, we're not in sin here. Like our conscience is clear. There is only one God. We all have knowledge of this one God. We're, gonna, we're submitted to this one God. It doesn't matter what we're eating. That's kind of the context for what is taking place. And, and Paul comes in here and he says, hey, you're right about that. But also you're very, very wrong about that. Because I'm not calling you to abstain simply because you're a slave to the law again. I'm calling you to abstain because the conscience of your brother the conscience of your sister, the faith of your brother, the faith of your sister—it is at risk. He's going to say here in a bit, here in a minute. He says, "Your knowledge puffs you up, oh, but it's the love that builds you up." There's—you have all the knowledge, Corinth. You're brilliant. You're smart, but do you have love? This is interesting. Then he does a little bit of a play on words here for us. And so, for you all in this room, uh, you've heard it said, right? It's not about what you know, but what? Say again? For people in the balcony? Who you know? It's not about what you know, but what who you know. And Paul says here in verse 3, if you could put it back up for me even, Paul says it isn't what you know, but who knows you. That's what really matters. It's not about what you know, but who knows you. But if anyone say, loves God, well, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, he's known by God. It's not about what you know, but it's who you know, right? It isn't about what you know, but listen, are you known by the God of heaven? Are you known by the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are in fact known by him, then the way that you model your knowledge of God is going to reflect the love that God has placed upon you. So Paul looks at these people and he says, your knowledge, Corinth, is temporal. And you need to understand the context here, right? That'd be like you go into your, uh, I don't know, your professor at university, like in chemistry and being like, you don't know anything about chemistry. He'd be like, well, as a matter of fact, I do, you know? And so it's like these guys were great orators, great knowledge, super intelligent. And Paul comes in and says, you think you know, but you have no idea. Oh, that was them there. There's some fighting words there from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, right? He says, you think you know, but you do not know. Your knowledge is temporal, you are not all-knowing. This is very important to pause and think about for us. When it comes to Christian liberty and what we're free to do and free not to do, you need to keep in mind that you do not know everything about the person sitting across the table from you. You don't necessarily know their whole story. You don't know all their hurt. You don't know all their pain. You don't know if something is, maybe it pertains to alcohol, that something... Difficult came against them in their childhood because their parent was an abusive alcoholic. You have no idea what is happening. you do not know do you understand what he 's saying here but what you can know is whether or not you are loved by the Lord. And the way you know if you're loved by the Lord is if you felt known by God. And so he's saying, you're just simply called to model what it is that Christ has modeled for you. Have you experienced the love of God? Then error on the side of love. Are you in relationship with Jesus? How is that possible? Oh, through the sacrificial work of Jesus. Then you make a sacrifice for the love of the person sitting across the table. And you say, oh my gosh, I have all the freedom in the world to partake in whatever this thing might be here that's not black and white explicitly sinful. I have all the freedom in the world to participate in this, but for the sake of my brother, from a place of love, I'm going to model sacrifice in the same way that Jesus modeled sacrifice for me. I will, in fact, abstain, right? Christian liberty refers not to just what you're able to partake in, but your freedom to abstain from certain things as well. And he's saying, err on the side of Of love. What's interesting about this, and sometimes we forget our past and where we've come from, don't we? Not only do we not know the story of people sitting across the table, but sometimes we forget our own story, don't we? So let me remind you of a little book called Ephesians. We'll read from here in a little bit, but I was reading through Ephesians this week, and it says, You were born children of wrath. Put that on your resume, right? Born children of wrath, born sinful, born disconnected, born, alienated from the household of God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He said, the book of Ephesians would say, you had no hope, no people, no good news, no good story. You were completely disconnected and isolated from God the Father. You did not love God because God did not yet know you as a son or daughter. You were, in fact, not known. Listen to me. That's our history. Right. It's important to understand that we, you weren't just... Well, I got to watch how I say that theologically. There was more than likely a moment where you came to faith, right? Some of you were born, shot out the womb, I believe, praise the Lord. For a lot of you, though, you had a moment where you came to faith. You were a child of wrath, alienated from God. You did not know him. Did, he did not know you as a son or daughter. This is important when it comes to Christian liberty because we have this tendency then as a church, as the people of God, to come in and say, well, I can do whatever I want to do. I've been set free from the gospel. Let me ask you, does that sound like humility or does that sound like pride and arrogance? Perhaps we should model abstaining from some things, just erring in the sight of love for the sake of our brother, right? Because once you understand, church family, what it means to be known by God, oh, to have the hope of the gospel, to be brought into the fellowship of the family of God, to experience salvation, to have new life, to know the love of God, you cannot help but tell you what, to now model that love for everyone else around you, to model that same sacrifice for the people around you, to model the same humility that Jesus has modeled for you to all of those that are around you. So at the end of the day, the point here that Paul is making is that you should err in love, not initially because of the person sitting across the table, but initially because of who Jesus is. And then he's gonna to continue to push this out, verse four, those of you that aren't sold. Verse four, there you go. He says, therefore... As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. That's a quote from Corinth, right? They're saying, hey, we know idols don't mean anything. He's like, I hear you. And that, quote, there is no God but one, quoting the Shema or Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are in fact many gods and many lords, he says, yet for us there is one God, come on now, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so he's reeling them in here. He's saying, you think you know, you have no idea. It's not even initially about them. The call to abstention, the call to refrain that falls under the umbrella of Christian liberty is not initially about them, it's about the Father. It's not initially about them. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, church family, do you know this Father? Do you know this Lord? Do you feel known by the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If the answer is yes, then the way that you pursue Christian liberty will look like you're doing it from a place of love, from a place of sacrifice, from a place of humility. So Paul comes in and he says, there's only one Lord, there's only one Father. I read this commentary this week, and he says, uh, I love that, I forget exactly the word, but I love that Paul dropped, I think he used a $100 word, Christological. He dropped this Christological commentary on the people of Corinth, and then he gave no commentary himself. Paul comes in just very matter-of-fact is what he's saying. There's one Father, he's in the kingdom, and there's one Lord. All things are created for him, all things are created through him, and your role is to submit to him. Colossians 1, you said. I'm so thankful you mentioned Colossians 1 for me, church family. We're going to read it. And I feel like we can just take communion when we're done, but we have more to talk about. Colossians 1, Paul says a little bit more about this Father and this Lord. Let me refresh your memory here. He's the image of the invisible God. He ain't an idol, is he? He's the image, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of, what? All creation. For by him, to say some things were created, all things were created We're at in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. What does it say? All things were created through him and for him. And he is before what? All things. And in him, what? All things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself, what? All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And then he says, the conviction here, and you, talking to the church, who were once, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled, that is, brought you back into relationship with him, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Like this is the God that we're called to make these decisions for. He is one Father. He's one Lord. And literally every millisecond of everything that's ever been in existence was created and exists for his glory and for his honor and for his lordship as he is the creator God. And so Paul now is saying, with that in mind, that's how you pursue Christian liberty. It's not first and foremost about the individual sitting across the table from you over a cup of coffee or over some dinner or in your missional community saying, no, you approach Christian liberty not with what I'm free to do, but what the gospel has freed me to abstain from because of who Christ is. Oh, and in your abstention family, you actually get to model more deeply what it looks like to be your suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Did he not abstain from a few things for our salvation? Right, and as you engage the gospel and as you understand like who Christ is and what Christ has forewent for you, think about it with me for a second. Like imagine being in a perfect kingdom where everything is perfectly yours And you let go of that to go hang out with the very people that are going to murder you. Like Jesus forewent his whole kingdom, abstained from that for a season to come down to earth, to live incarnate, completely upholding and fulfilling the law as a matter of fact so that we don't have to die under the weight of the law. He literally goes to the cross, then dies on the cross, resurrects to new life, firstborn son over all creation, sends us the Holy Spirit, births a church. It is his work that brings us salvation, not our own. And he does it through abstention. He abstains from so much for our sake. Is it so asinine that we might set across the table from a brother and sister and say, I don't necessarily agree with you on what I'm allowed and not allowed to do in this moment. But for the sake of the gospel, as a brother or as a sister, I will joyfully abstain. For it only allows me to further identify with my suffering servant. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to sanctify me so that I might look more like your son today. Does that make sense to you? And check this out. What's beautiful about this is he is Lord and Father. The book of James says that all good gifts come from the Father from above. In your abstention of this one thing, whatever this one thing might be, and some of you have one thing in your mind, you're like, I don't know if I could give that up. If he's truly the Father of lights and all good gifts come from the Father above, in abstaining from one thing, has he not blessed you with a thousand other things you could do today? for his lordship and for his glory? Can I give you a million other things you could partake in just this day so that you might experience joy today? We can probably abstain from this one thing, yes? Christian liberty is not always about what you get to do, but about what you get to abstain from doing. And when you model abstention, you get to model Letting go. When you model abstention, you get to model sacrifice. When you model abstaining for something for the good of the person sitting across the table from you, in your abstention, you get to reveal a greater hope and a greater glory and a greater joy. And it comes through abstaining. In your abstention, you get to further identify with the sacrifices that Jesus made for you. It's in your abstention, church family, that the gospel might actually become real for you. It might be the only area of life you're actually sacrificing in. So why do we do this? Error on the side of love, why? Second point, for the sake of your brother or sister, he says, for the sake of your brother or sister. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 11, we'll camp out here for a minute. He says, however now, not all possess this knowledge. He's saying not all have a good understanding of what it means to be set free in the gospel. So we'll maybe talk about the gospel in a minute again, yeah? But some, listen, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. We are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This is maybe one of the most misused scriptures in the Bible. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak, to feed, eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. We'll come back to 11 here in a minute. And so Paul says, not everyone understands the freedom of the gospel. Not everyone understands like the song we sang earlier where we plead with God to kind of remove our religiosity Uh, from us. Not everyone in the church body understands the freedom that Christ has in fact set us free, this reality, this truth. And so in that then, there is a call here not to arrogance and pride to look down our nose at people because we know better, but rather there's a call here to submit ourselves as Christ Jesus submitted himself for us. And so whenever you think about this, when I think about this text, right, there's some people because of their story, because of the things that they've been associated with in their past. For Corinth, it was perhaps idol worship and food and idol temples. For you, it could be a plethora of other things, where maybe you've had some form of hurt come against you within your story. Maybe it was alcohol is an easy one for us to talk about as a church. Perhaps you did have an abusive alcoholic Pairing. Perhaps you yourself were an abuser of alcohol at some point. And so there might be a reality as it pertains to your conscience and as it pertains to your story and your personal convictions that for you to partake in something like alcohol may in fact be sinful for you, while it is not necessarily sinful for me. At the same time and in the same token, it might actually be sinful for me to partake in something like alcohol in your presence, Because of your conscience, because of your conviction, and because you're my audience in that moment. Does that make sense for you? You're like, I feel like you're saying the same thing backwards. It's because I am. It's it's gray. It's not black and white. All you little legalistic note takers are like, I hate this sermon. I get it. I understand. Just tell me what to do. I'm telling you, there's some gray area, right? If it's subjective idolatry, there's gray area. If there's objective idolatry, that means it is very matter of fact black and white. you got to run from that thing. Paul said, flee from those things, as a matter of fact, right? But perhaps then, based off someone's story, you have to be mindful of it. Maybe it is just someone that is a newer Christian, and then they're they're not as acquainted with the gospel. They don't have as much knowledge. They don't have good gospel fluency, as we call it, within Heights community. And so they might think something is sinful when it is, matter of fact, not sinful. Even in that, as a more mature Christian, does it make more sense, or is it more Christ-like to look at someone with perhaps a little bit more a little bit less intelligence than you can go, hey, for the sake of relationship, brother or sister, I will simply abstain from this until we have further dialogue. Makes sense? So there's a lot. There's literally hundreds of different things that I could talk about while I'm up here. This is the most difficult aspect of the sermon is say, well, what, what do I give them? What can I tell them? And I, w- I would tell you this, if it's not objective, if it's not objectively here, then we have to consider, is it subjective? Is it about a spirit-led conviction? And then at that point, that moment, put some of you religious folks in a hard place, because now you've got to trust the Holy Spirit to actually reveal to you some of the things that are happening uh, in your life. So there are some things that are a matter of conscience and conviction, and we call that subjective authority. I wrote down a few of the idolatry. I wrote down a few uh, just last night. Yoga for the Christian, for example. I've had arguments with people about yoga for the Christian. Uh, the use of THC in marijuana, as of lately, with it being legalized. Uh, alcohol has been mentioned. Uh, certain clothing items. I mean, some of y'all went to a church where the pastor could never wear a soccer jersey up on stage, yeah? Tattoos. Uh oh! Certain, <laughs> all of us are out. All of your, almost all of your pastors are fired. So, tattoos, uh, certain TV shows, music, right? And so it comes down to the matter of the audience, the conscience. The conviction is a subjective idolatry, is it not? Like, for example, I'll give you a few examples here. Uh, Whenever I was in the car, we were on our way up north traveling with my my wife and kids. I wanted to watch a show that was on Stars, and I felt like it was a little inappropriate. And I was like, man, I don't know that I want to watch this, talking to my wife. I said, hey, babe, I don't know that I want to watch this. I feel like it's a little inappropriate. She simply asked, who does the show bring glory to? Does it bring glory to you, or does it bring glory to God? I was like, dang it. And so she's a sniper. These simple questions that she asks all the time. I was like, God brings glory, to I think, to me. She's like, well, then just don't watch it, right? I had all the freedom in the world to watch a show. My conscience was fairly clear, but I was teetering there a little bit because I was uncertain. She said, just avoid that. Some of you have been raised now in churches that were highly fundamental and highly legalistic. I wasn't raised in the church at all. The few times that I went, um, the pastor just gave our family a very hard time. I was one of the few biracial families in my small community, and this pastor at this Baptist church that I would go to would say things like, if you're in a biracial relationship, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm like, well, that's, that's oddly specific there, pastor. You know, like, as a young man, I'm like, I think we're the only one in the church, as a matter of fact. You know, he would say things like, me and uh, two of my best friends, one of them had uh, earrings. when of them had their hair dyed, and I had holes in my jeans. And we were sitting in the third row one Sunday. And he says, "Hey, if you got, if you have earrings in your ears, a man, or your hair dyed as a man, or holes in your jeans, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven." And I was like, "I think, I think he's talking to us as a matter of fact. I think he's talking to us." I mean, it's a miracle that I'm in the church. It's a miracle to some of you. Are in the church, right? That's not, uh, that's not, even, that's not objective idolatry, right? That's, that's a matter of preference, and Paul has talked about that. It's a matter of opinion. We've already talked about that in the book of uh, Corinthians. It might depend upon the audience in some ways, but the point I'm making is this. If it's not objectively clear, black and white, then you have to ask the question, is it a matter of conscience, is it a matter of conviction, or is it a matter of the audience? I hope have said this enough times uh, for you to be able to write it down. So then how do I determine, besides just asking that question, how do I determine then when I'm in sin in one situation, but I'm not in sin in another situation? How do we make that determination where we don't feel like a hypocrite because you act one way around one person, you act another way around another person, could easily be perceived as hypocrisy. So how do we know? Well, Paul has already said that uh, if you know God, then you must be loved by God, because the only way you can know God is in fact the Lord has loved you. That's pretty clear. So in that, then, there's an initial call to be known, uh, to know the Lord, to, be, to love the Lord, to be known by God. There's a call there to be known. And so I would ask you, first and foremost, like, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Genuinely speaking, like, do you understand the gospel? Because the gospel is, um, there are some things you matter-of-factly should not do because they don't bring honor and glory to the Lord. And at the same time, you cannot save yourself. That's where Christian liberty comes in. That's where Christian freedom begins to come in. Whenever you profess faith in Jesus, you're looking at Jesus and you're saying, hey, I can't do this thing on my own. God, you've kept the law faithfully in my place as my substitute. Thank you for doing that. You've now went to the cross and paid the price for my sin in your sacrifice. Thank you for doing that. You've resurrected to new life. You've sent me the Holy Spirit. And now, even in the midst of my depravity, even whenever I fall short of the expectations of the law, you still see me as blameless. You still see me as good. You still see me as a son or daughter, church family. That's love, right? Whenever I can act like a child of wrath and the father looks at me and says, no, you're still a son. You're my son. I stood in your place. He reminds the Father that he keeps the covenant for us, for me. It doesn't give me license now to do whatever the heck I want to do. That's called being licentious. Oh, man, but it does set me free to say, you saved me on my worst days and on my best days, and you still see me as a son? Well, now all of a sudden I want to keep your commands. I want to walk after you. There's a freedom that has been given to me. I pray that the gospel would set some of you free today, that you can turn from legalism and religion and stop trying to save yourself through your good works or through relationships or, as we mentioned, substances, through substance abuse. None of those things will save you. Only Jesus will save you. Like, run for them, flee from them. That's the gospel, believing, professing faith in that. That's how you become known and loved by the Father. That's the first thing. The second thing, then, he says, is you've got to be known And you need to know the people that are around you. You need to both know and secondly be known, right? You need to know those. You also need to know the word of God because some of the people around you are maybe not the best person you need to be around. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You need to know the word of God, but you need to know the people of God that are around you. And you need to allow yourself the freedom to be known. This is one of the reasons why we do missional community. Right? Some of you still treat missional community like a small group, like you just kind of show up to it, you eat your food, you do your curriculum, and then you go home. That's not the intentionality there. That's not the strategy behind that. The goal there is that you would come in and learn how to be hospitable family with one another. The part of hospitable family is actually opening up yourself and opening up your soul and laying yourself bare, right? You're still thinking about missional community like a small group that's meant to benefit you solely in some way. That's a consumeristic mentality. That's not what we're aiming for. We're aiming for genuine pursuit, genuine family, genuine hospitality that drives the gospel out into our community and on leaves us on mission. If you come into your missional community gathering and you treat it like it's something that's just for you, you're not going to open up. Or you're going to open up to such a degree that it's literally just all about you that evening. right? And so at the same token, it matters what you say whenever you come in. It matters how much of yourself you give over to other people. It matters that you are in fact known in there. Because the worst thing you can do is walk around with don't cause your brother to stumble on your t-shirt or on your coffee mug and you're not sharing all the things that will actually lead you to stumble. That's prideful arrogance. That's idolatry, right? To come in with unvoiced expectations to a group of people that are trying to love you well and then to not confess how it is you're actually doing is self-exaltation and idolatry. It's to put yourself on the throne where Jesus should rightfully be sitting on the throne. And so your MC, your missional community that's gathered together on a Tuesday or Wednesday as well as scattered throughout the week, it should look different based off the seasons by which people are in there. Like we've had seasons in our missional community where we've abstained from alcohol completely in the gathering as well as outside of the gathering. You come in, cats out the bag, you come to the chapel MC, there's probably going to be a bottle of wine on the island depending on who's in our MC. There's nothing wrong with drinking wine or drinking, as I mentioned, the first service, bourbon. It's, it says strong drink in the Bible. It says strong drink. Okay? Nothing wrong with that. As long as you're doing it within a normal state, you're not pursuing drunkenness, right? There's a difference there. And so you come into RMC, sometimes you'll have seasons in RMC where you'll come in and we'll have no desserts because we have people in RMC that don't take, don't take care of their bodies. And they have actually growing more and more ill because of the things that they put into their body. And so we abstain from those things for the sake of our brother and sister. They might not have confessed that they're stumbling, but we perceive in them that there is a stumbling block there. And so there are things that we can abstain from. There's lots of things that the Holy Spirit will lead you to abstain from simply for the sake of your brother and sister. The goal of Christian liberty is not to look at someone and say, hey, I can do whatever I want to do. The goal of Christian liberty is to say, hey... How might I better model Jesus in my abstention from the things that I am most certainly allowed to do? You still tracking with that? All right. Last one then is this. Because Christ died for them. So err on the side of love for the sake of your brother and sister. Why? Because Christ died for them. I don't feel like I should have to elaborate more on that, but I will. We got five minutes here. Verse 11. And so by your knowledge... This weak person is destroyed, he says, the brother for whom Christ died. Listen to me. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. He's putting Christ at the front of this thing, Jesus at the front of this thing. Therefore, he says, therefore, meaning because I'm sinning against Jesus initially, not my brother or sister. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, listen, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble right some of y'all would not know how to function if this was your case would it you take that whole out of the book of acts three different times the apostle peter is told rise kill and eat you like wear that on your t-shirt don't you those of you from saint jacob and so uh, paul says at the end of the day it's just meat right hey at the end of the day it's just meat at the end of the day it is just a glass of wine it is just a glass of bourbon at the end of the day it is just yoga at the end of the day it is just a tattoo it's, the point that he's making here is don't 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 exalt the gifts of God over the giver of the gift. Don't exalt the gifts of God over the giver of that gift. God did not give you beautiful gifts while we're here to create distance from him, to create distance between the people of God, but rather so that you would delight in those gifts that a good father has given to his sons and daughters. This is the point that he's making. It's just meat. It's just this. It's just... That And the only reason, then, that we have freedom to begin with is because Christ died for us. The only reason that we have any freedom to abstain is because, as mentioned earlier, Jesus literally abstained from some things that are unfathomable to us now, but we will fully grasp in the end. Like when we finally enter into the kingdom of heaven and we see 10,000 times 10,000 angelic hosts or seraphim angels lit ablaze, screaming out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there's a the complete and total absence of sin and there's perfect peace and balance and shalom. We're going to look in that moment and go, this is what he let go of? For me? That's Unbelievable. Like he let go of eternity so he could come and be a man. He let go of eternity so the very people he comes to save would sacrifice him and put him on a cross. And even in going to the cross, he has to abstain. What does he do? He abstains from his father. Dude, relationship broken for the first time between him and his father. Imagine being in a relationship for millennia. Perfect relationship forevermore and you willingly cut ties with that momentarily so you can redeem the very people that put you on the cross. Oh, Then he resurrects to new life and he doesn't keep his power to himself, does he? No, 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 no. He says, you are my bride and you're the church and then he sends us the Holy Spirit, empowers us with the Holy Spirit, gives us all new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we can look down our nose in arrogance at the rest of the world because they do things we disagree with? Well, no, so we can get to know them. We can hear hear their stories and be acquainted to them and live on mission and, and to the glory of God, look at some situations and go, hey, we don't agree on this. Oh man, but in 17 million years from now, it ain't even gonna matter. Let me tell you about the love of Jesus and his sacrifice. And then in your abstention, man, you get to model what Jesus modeled for you. In your abstention, you get to model the love that Christ modeled for you to someone else. In your abstention, you get to model the joy that led Jesus to go to the cross as you're abstaining for your brother or sister across the table. The gospel has to be the root of all this lest it becomes legalism. You have to do all this with the Father in mind and the Son in mind and all of their work. And in so doing, The things that are objective idolatry here in the text, you go, oh, man, I'm going to run from that uh, because the Lord has gifted me with some good gifts. And when it comes to subjective authority or idolatry, you can go, I don't know that I necessarily agree, brother or sister, but from a place of love, I'm going to err on that. You might be right, and I might be wrong, but from a place of humility, I'm going to abstain for the glory of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Why don't you all stand with me for communion? Invite the team up. As we enter into uh, communion, let me remind you. uh, Communion is not a religious event uh, for us. Uh, Communion is what we call a redemptive event. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done uh, for us and to us and through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so when you come forward here in a moment, uh, you'll see the bread which represents Christ's body uh, that was broken for you uh, in your place uh, as your substitute reminds you of all the things that he abstained from from for you uh, so that you could turn in abstention for your brother or sister across the table from you. Uh, At the same time, uh, you'll see the cup, which represents Christ's blood that was spilled in your place uh, as your substitute. And as you come up into communion and you partake in the bread and in the cup, man, you take in the gospel. It begins to form and and reform you and change your agenda and your worldview and your preferences and begins to kill your pride and your arrogance. And uh, I would also then encourage you, as we've done the last few weeks, that perhaps today is a day where you need to abstain from the Lord's Supper. Uh, Perhaps today, as a Christian, you have unconfessed sin, or you're not believing the gospel in some area. Let me encourage you just to remain where you're at today. It's okay. This is not a food that has been sacrificed to an idol, but it's also okay to abstain from communion when you find yourself in habitual sin, because as you partake in communion, you continue to harden your heart to the gospel and Paul has been clear with us this last couple of weeks. This is not something we want to do. Uh, in the same token, maybe today, uh, the Lord has set you free from some weight of legalism that's been shoved down your throat throughout your whole life. Or you maybe perhaps have been told something has been sinful and you feel like it's putting a wedge between you and the Lord or you and someone else. And the Holy Spirit today said, hey, that's actually not sinful at all. Well, in that case, I would come and feast. I would eat and I would dine and I would do so with redemption Uh, in mind, that Jesus is the one that paves the way for us to come uh, into the kingdom of God. Uh, So for those of you who are in Christ, uh, this is a meal that's for you. Come forward uh, whenever you're ready.